This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. About once a month, we find ourselves having to play catch-up ball on this program and see if we can't sift through the mountain of material which we've amassed for your listening pleasure. So today, as we often do, we're going to go through that material and get up to speed. We would like to note that on next week's show, or possibly the week after, we plan to air an extensive interview with Freeman Dyson. The distinguished physicist is here at UC Davis for our 100th anniversary year. Freeman Dyson was here 25 years ago for our 75th year, and it was a big success, so the powers that be decided to bring him back. Wisely, we'd say. I had a chance to hear uh, Freeman Dyson talk on Tuesday of this week, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that on today's program, but we really look forward to an extensive interview with him, probably to air the week after the election show. Freeman Dyson has been on our short list of potential guests for for many a year, and we're very pleased uh, at the prospect of bringing him to you, dear listener, because uh, this is a man who, uh, who basically helped Richard Feynman and others win the Nobel Prize uh, and was described by Dr. Hans Bethe, the man who was the director of theoretical physics during the Manhattan Project, as as capable a student as he'd ever seen. He's won awards in physics, he's won awards for his ability to educate, and he's won awards uh, for his look at theology. We're confident he's going to be a very good guest. We're also hoping to bring back Gordon Uncle John Javna, the editor of the highly entertaining uh, Bathroom Reader series. And uh, there's a good possibility on our pre-election show next week, we'll be speaking with Bill Durston, running for Congress in the 3rd Congressional District, and Charlie Brown, running against Tom McClintock for the 4th Congressional District here in California. At any rate, we anticipate some first-class guests in the weeks to come. Before we begin, dear listener, I would like to point out an email that I received that I think I need to inform you about. Last year, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting ran a contest to try and, uh, well, uh, promote some new talent. Well, this year the CPB has a new initiative that builds on last year's talent quest. Allow me to quote from their email. We're sending this message on behalf of the Association of Independence in Radio, AIR. AIR wants you to let them know about a brilliant producer, reporter, or sound artist you think has the potential to stretch public radio beyond current broadcast boundaries. They'll reward 12 to 15 of the nominees with twenty dollars to $40,000 each to experiment. Who do you know who can most surprise them by harnessing emerging digital tools and distribution channels to give new shape to the sound of public radio? This contest is being called the Public Radio Makers Quest 2, MQ2. The website in question for this initiative is www.mq2.org. Now, if any of you out there can think of any radio program that's pushing the boundaries for public radio... We think that by all means, you should go to that website and make some nominations. Now, are we suggesting you go to this website and nominate us for this process? Of course we are not doing that. 
But dear listener, we think this is a most worthy cause. www.mq2.org If you choose to do this, you'll need to do it by midnight, Halloween, October 31st, Eastern Standard Time. But let us begin today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History, the date in question being October 23rd. It was on October 23rd in 42 BC during the Roman Civil Wars that followed Julius Caesar's assassination that imperial forces crushed the Republican army of Marcus Junius Brutus at Philippi. Brutus then killed himself. 1684 years later, that would be in AD 1642, in the first major battle of the English Civil Wars, that would be the Battle of Edge Hill, well, they fought to a draw. There, Oliver Cromwell, the future ruler of the Commonwealth of England, Scotland, and Ireland, made his first appearance at the head of troops in the capacity of a captain. We've been meaning to talk about Oliver Cromwell on the show for some years now. We haven't gotten around to it yet, but sooner or later we will. He was a remarkable figure in world history. On October 23rd in 1864, in the largest American Civil War engagement west of the Mississippi, Union forces drive Confederate General Sterling Price's raiders out of Missouri at the Battle of Westport. On October 23, 1941, Yorgi Zhukov assumed command of the Red Army operations to stop the German advance into the heart of Russia. Marshal Zhukov would retain command throughout World War II, planning and executing virtually all major Soviet engagements. When I was in Red Square a couple months ago, I observed the large equestrian statue of Marshal Zhukov with his hand extended, sort of in a gesture of halt, which is what he certainly did to the invading Nazis. Our quote of the day comes from former President Ronald Reagan, and we've mentioned this quote before, but we're going to talk about it at a little greater length today. The quote comes from Reagan's campaign stump speech, which he repeated all over America. Reagan used to say, I am no linguist, but I understand in the Russian language there is no word for freedom. Someone pointed out to Reagan that the Russian word for freedom was svoboda, or at least someone pointed that out to a Reagan aide who then responded with, yeah, but it makes a good story, doesn't it? Freeman Dyson talked about uh, the translation of the American concept and word freedom into Russian, uh, which, I, which I thought was very curious, and uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but... Uh, Apparently, Svoboda is not actually the Russian word for freedom in the American sense of the word. Our quip of the day comes from the late, great TV entertainer Johnny Carson, who was actually born on this date in 1925. Carson once said, For three days after death, hair and fingernails continue to grow, but phone calls taper off. Our joke of the day comes from Daryl Hogue, who said, SUVs are named for exotic places we'll never go, like the Dodge Durango or the GMC Yukon. There should be truth in advertising, like calling them the Dodge Dubuque or the GMC, I'm going to 7-Eleven for a moon pie. Our stat of the day is as follows. In Crawford, Texas, there used to be seven gift shops that sold George W. Bush souvenirs. Three have now gone broke, and of the four left, only two still maintain regular hours of operation. And from the miscellaneous file, we have this irresistible item. 
Apparently, the president of Virgin Galactic, Will Whitehorn, said his company received a $1 million proposal to film a sex video on board its spacecraft while the participants floated in zero gravity. Whitehorn told the International Astronautical Conference in Glasgow, UK last week, That was money we had to refuse, I'm afraid. Which reminds us that sometime next month we expect to bring back our adult film correspondent to this program. The immortal Christy Canyon is now quite a big radio star on the Sirius Satellite Network, and we are uh, pleased to note that she got her start radio right here on this show. We think that uh, beyond a doubt, she has the greatest laugh in show business. And I think it's time now for the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Associated Press, it was a good week last week for freedom of speech after North Carolina Republican Representative Robin Hayes said at a John McCain rally that liberals hate real Americans that work and accomplish and achieve and believe in God. Hayes had said earlier this week he did not recall telling the crowd any such thing, but when presented with the transcript said that his remarks must have come out the wrong way. Adding in, in a prepared statement, I genuinely did not recall making that statement, and after reading it, there's no doubt that it came out completely the wrong way. Which kind of reminds us of the remarks made several years back by Arizona Governor Evan Meekham, who said, no, he was not a racist, and if you ask some of the good blacks, they'll tell you that that's the case. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for religious freedom, when in Kabul, Afghanistan, it was revealed that a 24-year-old student who'd run afoul of the authorities the year before when he circulated an article about women's rights under Islam after downloading it from the Internet, was sentenced to 20 years in prison. The student, Parwez Kambashk, had been convicted of blasphemy. Of course, before the Supreme Court in Afghanistan handed down this ruling commuting the student's sentence to 20 years, it was a pretty ugly week for religious freedom because he was originally convicted and sentenced to death. Said the New York-based Human Rights Watch, the case pointed to a troubling lack of respect for freedom of speech and individual liberties in Afghanistan nearly seven years after the U.S.-led invasion toppled the Taliban. And from the Only in America file, we have the item that Levi Johnston, the man who knocked up Sarah Palin's daughter, Bristol, now says, we were planning on getting married a long time ago, with or without the kid. And in doing so, denied reports that the couple was being pressured to marry out of political considerations. Johnston also took the time to deny that he'd created a MySpace page calling himself a redneck who didn't want kids. He now says the page was a joke created by his friends. And speaking of websites, one that we really like is truthout.org. They continue to produce some wonderful articles. If you haven't checked them out, you might want to consider doing so. I'd like to cite a recent article by Dean Baker that appeared in Truthout titled, Any Pay Cuts on Wall Street Yet? Which I'd like to quote from. Congress assured us there would be no more big paychecks for incompetent Wall Street bankers when they passed their bailout bill. 
They told us that the tough pay provisions would put an end to the multi-million dollar payouts to these folks. Last week, Treasury Secretary Paulson mailed $150 billion in checks to the big banks. From that point forward, the CEOs and all other top executives of these banks are now our dependents. They're living off the taxes of school teachers in Iowa, truck drivers in Montana, and even Joe the Plumber. If Congress wanted to preserve the financial system and not reward the people responsible for the financial crisis, it would have been a simple matter to impose safeguards to ensure that the bank executives were forced to take large pay cuts. And while many members of Congress implied that the bill would rein in executive pay, almost all the experts who examined the provisions on such pay have concluded they're largely toothless. The failure to seriously restrict executive compensation shows that the bailout was not just about keeping the financial system operating, it was also about giving money to the bank's executives and their shareholders. The media seems to think this is all very funny. After having done public relations work to help get the bill through Congress, most major news outlets have not highlighted the fact that no bank executives are likely to get pay cuts as a result of the bailout. And speaking of Wall Street weasels, uh, it turns out that uh, Stanley Weisner, who was the uh, author of the screenplay for Oliver Stone's Wall Street, a big hit back in 1987, has been pleased by the movie's enduring popularity, but is less happy about how audiences have made an icon of its slimy antagonist. That would be millionaire corporate raider Gordon Gecko, played by Michael Douglas. Weisner told the LA Times, What I find strange and oddly disturbing is that Gecko has been mythologized and elevated from villain to hero. As you may recall from the film, Gordon Gecko was a rapacious capitalist and ruthless insider trader. His signature line, greed is good, became a catchphrase for the 1980s. Said Stanley Wisner, the character was written to create an engaging and charming, but deceitful and brutal being. I've nevertheless run into quite a number of young people who wax rhapsodic about it for the wrong reasons. The movie changed my life. Once I saw it, I knew that I wanted to get into such and such business. I wanted to be like Gordon Gecko. Said Wisner, when he hears such things, the neurons fire and alarm bells go off. You have succeeded with this movie, but you've also failed. You gave these people hope to become greater asses than they already may be. And with Wall Street now self-destructing, Wisner's more ambivalent about his brainchild than ever. Several months ago, I was at Stone's office and I saw him autograph a Wall Street poster. Above his name, he wrote, Greed is a bummer. Ain't that the truth? Now, it so happens that uh, Stanley Wisner evidently wrote the screenplay for W., Oliver Stone's current offering about George W. Bush. Mr. McMillan and I had a chance to uh, see that film uh, uh, earlier this week, and, and we need to talk about it. And you know, it's, an, it's, an, it's, fact, it's a time Mr. McMillan had a chance to sound off about some of his opinions, which, uh, which in the case of W., let's just say, were not high opinions. You, you ready to comment on this, Mr. McMillan? Next week. All right, next week. Actually, we plan to bring back James Eugenio, the investigative journalist and former publisher of Probe magazine, who's had some dealings with Oliver Stone, to talk about W. But let's just say we were not pleased. In fact, I'd like to quote from the Sacramento Bee in its review of the movie, which was, 
a two-hour exploration of things most people already know. Oliver Stone's W is less a hatchet job on George W. Bush than a prolonged attack with a dull, disposable razor. Neither caustic nor revelatory enough to make an impact, the film mines easy laughs from Bush's malapropisms and wild youth. It is worthwhile for just two reasons. Josh Brolin's complex take on the title role and Stone's obvious fascination with his subject's sense of moral conviction. Said David Edelstein on National Public Radio, You know things aren't going well for a Republican president when the best thing that happens to him in ages is a biopic by the famously left-wing Oliver Stone that depicts him not as reprehensible, as Michael Moore has, but as an earnest boy-man with daddy issues. Let's give Stone points for trying. If nothing else, W is an honest effort. Too bad it's lifeless, a rhythmless hash of flashbacks and tinny dialogue. It's hard to know what went wrong. Maybe Stone wants to change his image as rabble-rouser and show his critics he's become more reflective and responsible. But his greatest attribute, and I say this as someone whose least favorite film of all time is Natural Born Killers, has always been a certain lusty blowhard showmanship. In the midst of these tumultuous times, in the midst of this tumultuous election, Stone has delivered his shallowest, most tepid film. Wrote uh, Steve Persall for the Tampa Bay Times and found on tampabay.com. Well, he asked the question, Stone's W, why? Said Persall, Stone refuses to play rabble-rouser with W even when themes call for it. The Vietnam veteran celebrated soldiers and castigated politicians in Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July. Yet here, Stone never broaches the subject of Bush's National Guard service that was famously called into question. Claims of a stolen 2000 presidential election are dismissed with one line of dialogue. One of the movie's problems is Stone's rush to judgment. He insisted on completing W so it could be released before the election. He started production a mere five months ago. Now we have a lame duck president and movie. Noted Jessica Haas on ABC News. Though the comic moments are broadly funny, sometimes bordering on campy, the focus on George W. Bush's evolution into a politician leaves questions unanswered. Perhaps director Oliver Stone didn't intend W. to be a serious biopic. But enough moments of melodrama are juxtaposed with the comedy to make you wonder what tone he did want to strike. Anyway, we're going to talk more about W. in uh, the weeks to come. And you may be wondering why it is we'd want to do that. I mean, if we didn't like it, say you didn't like it and move on, right? Well, the fact is we do have some high expectations for Mr. Oliver Stone. I think it's fair to say that I would not be in front of this microphone if it were not for Director Stone. This correspondent would consider JFK to certainly be among the best political movies ever made. And we have in the past disagreed with our esteemed colleague, Dr. Andy Jones, host of Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology, in that it should have won the Oscar in 1991, not The Silence of the Lambs. Like many people, I'd been interested in what actually happened to the 35th President of the United States back in 1963, and when Stone revisited the subject in his 1991 movie, well, my interest was fired up again to try and determine what actually happened. Seventeen years later, I still don't have the answer. But I certainly share the opinion of 85% of Americans that the Warren Commission report is a bunch of BS.
What really piqued my interest back in 1991 was the just the slew of publicity saying that Oliver Stone and this movie he's just made is not history and it should not be trusted. After seeing the film, which which clearly delineates where uh, where you know where speculations are being made, I just had to ask myself, now what was wrong with that? I wrote a rebuttal to the critics of of the film, which which meant to be a letter to the editor. But as sometimes happens in matters like this, it wound up running to about 120 pages. When there was a bit debate in the wake of a Journal of the American Medical Association article claiming that the autopsy pathologist in the JFK case had gotten it right, there was a debate in Chicago on the medical matters, and uh, yours truly and a few other people went there to uh, witness and uh, in our own small way take part in it. In doing what I can to help prepare Dr. Cyril Wecht for his debate one night at the Ritz-Carlton in Chicago, it was mentioned that uh, Oliver Stone was in town and, and might drop by. I didn't think it was too likely that the, uh, the director would come by and have margaritas with us, but uh, damned if he didn't 15 minutes later. Someone had brought, uh, brought to dinner my magnum opus and was going to give it back to me, and... Uh, Thought it would be time to point out to Stone what I had done. He took, the look, took a look at it and said, very nice. I'd like to have a copy of this for my records, if you don't mind. I said, I'd be happy to send you one, which I did and got a very nice thank you note. JFK is an edgy movie to be sure, but uh, you know it doesn't pull any punches. It got a lot of things right. And for that reason, one has to be especially disappointed at his most recent effort with W. And I think that's all we'll say about that on today's show. But uh, let's close with this item pertaining to Election Day. Apparently, public safety scientist Roy Look uh, did a study of traffic patterns since 1976 and discovered that, uh, well, you need to be aware on Election Day because your vote might just cost you your life. Apparently, on Election Day, there's an 18% increase in fatal accidents versus any other day. According to the study by scientists at the University of Toronto, there was an average of 800 additional crashes which produced disabling injuries. The researchers speculate that the accidents occur because people are rushing to the polls on unfamiliar routes and they could be distracted by the excitement of electoral politics. Researcher Luck says that wearing a safety belt and driving defensively with special care on Election Day should reduce the risks. Vote, he says, but be careful. Anyway, let's close with some commentary by our good pal, America's foremost political comic, Will Durst. Well, thanks, Doug. And today I'm just wondering which is scarier, the American landscape that the next president of the United States is destined to inherit or the fact that these two guys want it so bad. Or do they? Did you ever think that? Maybe John McCain is deliberately trying to throw the election. Wait a minute here. Losing two wars? Ten trillion in debt? Tampa Bay in the World Series? Not what I had in mind. Barack, my man, this one's yours. Hey, it could explain a lot. Like why he's running the worst campaign ever 
including Penn Jillette's appearance on Dancing with the Stars, or for the older crowd, France, in 39. Come on, people. It's the only explanation. He's running around like an ordinary troll with an irritable bowel syndrome. Whose playbook is that out of? Rumpelstiltskin or Ross Perot? Loses three debates while wearing kabuki makeup, doesn't know how many houses he owns, addresses a rally by saying, my fellow prisoners instead of my fellow citizens. Of course, that could be Manchurian candidate stuff. Do not show this man the Queen of Diamonds. Either way, this is the worst case of political suicide since Walter Mondale bragged in his 84 acceptance speech that he was going to raise taxes. The burgeoning Dump Palin movement has morphed into a Dump McCain groundswell. Of course, he does pick up a couple of percentage points in the polls every time he jumps off the trail for a few days, like during the financial crisis. So, there's your answer, boys. Clear the decks. Disappear. His best shot at winning this thing may be for him to slip into a coma for the next ten days. And some might argue he's already done that. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Always good to hear from Mr. Durst. Let's take a short break. 